Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 through 18.22, and we're looking at a number of perhaps leaders, we might say, in ancient Israel, like judges, kings, priests, and prophets. And we are joined today by none other than our colleague, Dr. Jeff Leonard. So Jeff Leonard is professor of Hebrew Bible at Samford University. He is the author of Creation Rediscovered, Finding New Meaning in an Ancient Story, published by Hendrickson. We talked a little bit about that last time we had him on. He's also the author of numerous articles and book chapters, but I know that the academic achievement that he is most proud of is his appearance in season one oh, of the Two okay. Testaments podcast, where <laughs> we talked to him about Job 3. Yes. Isn't that right, Jeff? Literally dozens of people have tuned in to, to see my episode, or at least the first five minutes before they you know, skip ahead to the next one. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> Actually, it's hundreds. Hundreds of people have listened to that episode, Jeff, so we're grateful uh, for your contribution there. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to invite you back, because you did such a great job in season one. So we wanted to hear your thoughts on Deuteronomy, but also you're doing some research on Deuteronomy now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it, it actually got to Deuteronomy in sort of an odd way. Uh, I was doing some work uh, trying to look at Hezekiah and his reforms, and kept following little data trails, uh, evidentiary trails to dead ends, um, and finally had to circle back and say, okay, we're, we're going to have to go further back than uh, what I thought, and that led to Deuteronomy. And if you're going to talk about how the Judean kings work, well, you got to look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is where the law of the king is. So it was a long and strange trip to get there. So you just mentioned the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17. How do you see these various issues related to leadership here in the passage we're going to look at in this episode fitting into Deuteronomy as a whole? Yeah, you know, this is a really important section because one of the things that Deuteronomy is wrestling with is it has a very strong desire to centralize Israel's worship. And as part of that, you kind of have to rethink a lot of the traditional uh, roles that different officials have had in the state. Uh, how are they going to uh, you know, relate to the capital city? How are they going to relate to the monarchy? Um, and so this becomes a quite central passage for outlining Deuteronomy's vision of what it thinks people like judges and priests and prophets and kings ought to do and how they fit into that new centralized uh, kind of vision for the cult. And Jeff, what do you find most difficult to understand in this uh, section of text here? So, you know, one of the big issues is that it seems like it sort of goes back and forth between dealing with an official and then a, a seemingly unrelated kind of discussion about apostasy or something. And, and then it's back to another official and then there'll be something unrelated. And it's, it's so stark that, uh, you know, most scholars have actually looked at this and said a portion of this is out of place, that what you really ought to do is take a, a section from the end of chapter 16 through uh, 17.7 and insert that 
into chapter 13 between verses 1 and 2. And when you do that, then suddenly a lot of pieces do fall into place. You, you get uh, the topics are more tidy uh, and organized. And it's one of those things that's been sort of so convincing that, goodness, for almost uh, a century and, you know, two decades, no one has really questioned it, except... There is a pretty good question that comes up about it. Uh, the uh, the wonderful Deuteronomy scholar Bernie Levinson, I, I think he's actually made a, a pretty convincing case that the passage is in the order that it ought to be. And so then he kind of works through the issue of, all right, so if this is the right order, then what are these pieces doing here and how do they fit together? So I, I think that's actually the most challenging part. Great. Well, we can potentially get into some of those issues as we move mm -hmm. through. But let's start at the beginning, chapter 16, 18 to 20. We get a rather brief description of the role of the judge here in Deuteronomy. It's rather sparse, but what does it tell us about what judges were expected to do in ancient Israel according to this text? But you know what's interesting is um, I don't know if it's actually sparse or not. I, I think mm -hmm. this is a it's a somewhat revolutionary sort of text mm -hmm. because it's the only place that you have in the entire Torah where judges are actually being appointed. Hmm. If you look, and it's not just in, in judges, it's the only place basically in the Tanakh where you have judges that are being appointed in this way. Normally, the judges were just the, you know, the old guys that hung out at the city gate and would decide cases. And so, you know, these are the people that come up in different contexts. Uh, for example, uh, you know, think about the book of Amos. Um, Amos will talk about how there's a, a poor person and they've, they've got a good case and they go to the, uh, the elders that are there at the town gate and they plead their case, but those elders have been bribed. And mm -hmm. so they, they won't listen to the case of that poor person. And so they, they can't find any justice. Uh, it's the same kind of situation you see in like uh, the book of Job, where Job is reminiscing about, oh, I remember when I used to go to the to the town gate, oh, they would stand up and they would give me their place because they respected me so much. And so uh, those kinds of people that did those cases, well, they weren't appointed. They were figures that just, you know, they were the heads of important families or maybe tribal leaders and such. Something that Deuteronomy is doing here that's quite different is it's actually setting up a structure where those judges are centrally appointed and put into their positions and given formal roles inside the country. And that's, that's a pretty stark change from the way that things have normally worked. And it mentions there, so you mentioned bribes, right? So verse 19, you must not distort justice, you must not show partiality, and you must not accept bribes. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Which sounds like something right out of Proverbs. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, but then I love verse 20. Justice and only justice you shall pursue. It reminds me of the kind of legal formulation that we use, right? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Right? Exactly. A similar kind of emphasis that we get here. Yeah, it's interesting that they pair the appointment of the judges with, with sort of a, uh, a miniature um, commission. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's almost like when someone, you know, at least in the United States, when they take particular offices, they have to swear an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. And there's a little bit of a constitutional element to the book of Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems quite interesting that here they appoint them. 
And then they, they put in there those traditional values about this is what your job is. It's to uphold justice. You know, if, uh, Deuteronomy draws a lot from the covenant code in the book of Exodus. And you can see how that language in the covenant code where it's saying, you know, don't judge in favor of the rich because they're rich. Don't judge in favor of the poor because they're poor. Just decide rightly this mm -hmm. case. And so it's interesting that that comes up right here when they're appointed. Now, in uh, chapter 17, verses 8 through 13, Deuteronomy comes back to Judges, and then we get this kind of discussion uh, about Judges that also links them in some way to priests. Um, and the passage begins by filling out our understanding of these roles a bit. Can you tell us what do we see here in terms of their roles and what they're supposed to be doing? So there's a passage that's in between uh, the the ones that y'all have mentioned thus far. And it's this long section in 17, two through seven that has to do with apostasy. And the reason why a lot of scholars like to move that one to chapter 13 is because there's another discussion there of apostasy and what do you do? And one of Levinson's points about why this passage belongs here and not there is that there's something added in this second section here. And what's added is it specifies that a person is only supposed to be um, punished for apostasy on the basis of the testimony of witnesses. Mm -hmm. And so it says, you know, it's only when you have two or three witnesses that you're allowed to execute this punishment. You can't do it just on the basis of one. That seems to be the, the distinguishing feature from the way chapter 13 discusses this issue. And so Levinson's argument is that this passage in 2 through 7 is actually uh, reworking that law in chapter 13 and alluding to it. And it even uses a little technique that uh, you all will know called Seidel's Law, where it alludes to it and flips things in the way that it cites it. And that's kind of a marker for quotation or allusion uh, in the Hebrew Bible. And so it's alluding back to it, but adding in that little element about evidence and testimony and witnesses. And then you come to the part about the judges. And so what is it the judges are supposed to do? Well, these local judges are supposed to examine cases where you can look at the evidence, you can size up who's in the right, who's in the wrong, and then make your decision. But what do you do if you find a case that's too hard for you? And so this is that text that starts off if a, uh, in verse 8, if a judicial decision is too difficult for you to make uh, between one kind of bloodshed and another, one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, well, what do we do in those cases? And that's where uh, two different parties actually come in. One is the, the judge. Uh, it's the judge that seems to be presiding in the place that Jehovah will choose. Seems like that would be, you know, maybe Shechem originally, but Jerusalem ultimately. Um, and then also the Levitical priest. So it's not an appellate court. It's not that you had your case, you know, overseen in the city and you didn't like that one, so you appeal to a higher authority. This is one where there's just not evidence, and so you need to take it to someone who's more expert. And I guess the issue would be, did the judge in the central city and the Levitical priest have the same role? And I'm not entirely sure that they did. I think the judge in the central city may have been somebody who is particularly esteemed, looked at as somebody who can maybe see through some cases in the way that a lower level judge might not be able to. And the Levitical priests, well, what's their role? 
it, it may actually be that their role is in a case where we just cannot figure it out at all, that's when we can appeal to God for assistance. And so their role may have been more oracular, where they're trying to reach out to God, whether it's through casting lots, the you know the Urim and Tumim, or some other kind of way of getting the divine decision in those cases that are beyond our ability to understand no matter what we do. You refer to the Lord as Jehovah. Why, why do you do that? So my deal is this. I, I, I refuse to say the divine name. Right. Um, if I'm praying in Hebrew, I'll say Hashem. Um, and so like when I do the, I used to do the high priestly prayer over my sons, I'd say, you know, Hashem 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 Um, if I'm reading scripture, I'll say Adonai, um, that's there. One of the beauties of saying Jehovah is that since it's a made up word, um, that, you know, comes from a mispronunciation, uh, and misinterpretation of what, you know, the rabbis or not, or scribes are trying to get you to do. I can say it and my students know exactly what name I have in mind, but I haven't profaned the divine name by actually saying it. Whereas if I say Adonai, well, which one am I talking about? Am I talking about Jehovah or am I talking about, you know, one of the many cases where God is called Adonai? Um, and so that's why I tend to do it that way. Something I notice here is that you're supposed to then carry out the decision exactly, right, as it was uh, rendered. Um, that, so carry, verse 10, carry out the, exactly the decision that they announce to you from the place that the Lord will choose. Diligently observe everything they instruct you. You must carry out fully the law that they interpret for you or the ruling that they announce to you. Do not turn aside from the decision that they announce to you either to the right or to the left. You know, when I hear that language, I'm thinking like this is, uh, you know, you don't turn to the right or to the left in terms of being faithful to the covenant that God revealed to Israel at Sinai, right? But this is a judicial decision. So, I mean, what do you think? Is is there something going on there? You know, I I think it's kind of interesting that they need to put that language in. And it kind of throws into sharp relief who's missing in this passage. And that's the king. Hmm. The, The king... He doesn't need that kind of verse that says, you know, don't turn aside from the right or to the left. The king has the tools available to make sure that you don't turn to the right or to the left. Uh, And so if if you disobey the king, well, the king could just punish you. So this seems to be something that is having to underscore the authority and the need to follow this new way of doing the judiciary. So now we've set it up where we have a centralized cult. We don't have a priest in every town anymore, so we can't just go to the local priest and let him, you know, cast lots or make that decision. We have a local judge, and if he's now just a local judge and not a priest, are the people going to follow him? So we have to throw that in there to say, yeah, you do need to follow him. And then we also have that centralized judge, which seems like it's a new figure. Previously, it was probably just the king who would be that person. You don't have to tell them to obey him. He can make sure of that. So now you've got this uh, central judge, this kind of supreme judge, and the Levitical priests. And because they don't necessarily have the guns to enforce their decisions, that's when you get this this line that comes in and says, you must do this. Make sure you don't turn uh, to the right or to the left. And there is an assumption that the judge and the priest will be giving you a just decision. 
so that if you're turning away from that just decision to the right or to the left, well, that's an act of infidelity. If we didn't have that line about, you know, judge rightly and do the right thing, then maybe it's just, uh, I don't know, just the powerful making sure that cases go their way. But once you've underscored it and said, when these guys make a decision, they're making a decision that uh, follows the law, is just. So if you turn aside from that, you're being unlawful and unjust. And so that's why there's that need to underscore it. Yeah. Right. And the penalty there is death, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and, it, and that penalty for death concludes with, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Right. Which does seem to tie into some of the covenant language yeah. we see elsewhere. But also, I do think what Jeff's pointing to is this fundamental justice that you're diverging from if you don't obey the judge and the priest's um, decision. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, a line in here where there's a slight difference in the wording where it says that you're going to be obeying the covenant. When Deuteronomy talks that way, it's talking about something that's written. Mm -hmm. And so now the it's not just the decision of the judges who are these, you know, wise sages who, you know, come up with the right, uh, you know, conclusion for a particular case. But these are people who are actually teaching you the law. And so as they explicate the law, as they teach the law to you, if you diverge from what they are saying, you're, you're actually breaking scripture. You're, you're going away from the covenant that God has given to the people. And so there's that emphasis once again about this is why you need to be so faithful in carrying this out, because otherwise you would be diverging from what God's told you to do. Yeah. And I suppose we'll come back to the priests later, but one of the things the priests do, of course, is they are responsible for instructing and teaching the law or the covenant, right, to the people. Yeah. yeah. So you've tied 17, 2 to 7 into the judges, but there are a couple other passages here in between. 16, 21 to 22 talks about Asherah poles and pillars, which are prohibited. And then 17, 1 forbids sacrifices with blemishes. Any way that these are related to the role of the judge? It, you know, I think it's, it's a little tougher <laughs> because... Uh, I think you can make a good case for how verses two through seven just fit right in there. Um, and I think it's that, that key of its reworking a previous passage. It um, is putting in that issue of this is how you do evidence and so forth. I think where it gets more difficult is there's no question that um, what's the right way to put it. Biblical authors were a little bit more eclectic in the way that they sometimes organize their legal materials. Um, and so, you know, people will come up with, you know, little attachments. Oh, this is why this is here. And it's just so obvious. And it seems sometimes a little bit more impressionistic to me yeah. than it is, um, you know, maybe, maybe more art than science. Right. Um, so it's it, sometimes I think these passages are connected by word plays. You know, they'll group them together. Frankly, sometimes I think they're put there because they didn't have another spot for it. And right. so it's like, yeah, we'll stick it right in here. Um, and it's not to demean the biblical legist, uh, obviously, but, you know, they had a lot of legal traditions that they're trying to put together. And I, I, I don't think this is unprecedented. I certainly think there's a connection between uh, the, the school of the Deuteronomists and uh, the wisdom schools. I, I hesitate to say that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in the presence of someone who's pronounced the obituary of wisdom <laughs> literature, but it, it seems to me, I'll, I'll put it in different terms, seems to me there's a connection between Deuteronomy and Proverbs. Yeah, um, there you go. There you, that's better, right? Um, 
And so uh, if that's the case, well, when you look at Proverbs, you know, you can look at a certain passage and say, wow, there are a lot of Proverbs in here that have to do with money. But there are quite a few that aren't, you know, related to money. So what's the logic of how these were organized? I'm not sure it's possible in every case to figure out what those uh, that web of connections is. Yeah. Great. So in uh, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, uh, the next leadership role that we encounter is that of kings, right, of the king. Um, and readers, I think, were often surprised by this passage if we're more familiar with what we encounter uh, in First Samuel, right, with the rise of the monarchy and the king, and where God chastises the people, right, or, and Samuel does, for wanting a king like all the nations around them. Yeah. Now here in 17 verses 14 through 15, it reads this, When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settle in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so this seems to say, okay, fine, when you want a king, <laughs> you may have a king, but in Samuel, it seems pretty bad that they're asking for a king. I mean, how do you see these two things working together or not? (laughs) Yeah, this is actually one of the texts that I will use in some of my introductory lectures with my students when I'm trying to help them see that a lot of times what the Bible does is that it provides arguments and guardrails rather than just coming up with one, you know, unified position. And one of the most obvious kinds of areas where you have arguments preserved inside of Scripture are over the issue of should we have a king or not. Um, I would make the case that um, the entire book of Judges is an extended argument to say we need a king. Deuteronomy, a similar sort of passage, you know, where when you move into the land, you can have a king. But not everybody in Israel felt the same way. And I think in part it's because they had been so badly burned by the monarchy. Mm. Um, David comes in. Oh, David does a great job. You know, he's building bridges and is a wonderful politician and so forth. Solomon creates a kingdom that seems to be far bigger than David's, but it came at a price. Solomon becomes so tyrannical in the way that he runs things that he pretty much just systematically abuses the north to the degree that as soon as Solomon dies, all of the north rebels and goes away. And so I would tend to think that Deuteronomy emerges from those northern circles that had been uh, mistreated a good bit by the monarchy and gotten uh, short shrift from it. They're far enough along that they've reconciled themselves to the idea that we're going to have a king, but they also want to put in some provisos that say, okay, if we do have a king, we need some limitations on that king. We don't need somebody like Solomon. We need somebody who is, well, frankly, a little bit more like the judges used to be, maybe more powerful than the judges, but less powerful than Solomon was. Let's talk about those provisos. So we've got three, as I count them, three prohibitions, three things that the king is not supposed to do, and then one primary thing that the king is supposed to do. Uh, So... Talk to us about those, and you might explore how they're connected to Solomon in light of what you've just said. So you have an interesting set of dilemmas uh, that come up in this passage. Um, Part of it, to me, just screams out, you know, the rule for the king is don't be Solomon. Um, You know, when it lists the things that the king is not supposed to do, it says, uh, you know, the king should not have a lot of horses. And you go, 
So who do we know in the Bible who had a lot of horses? Well, that's curious. That's Solomon who had a lot of horses. And then it says, nor should he have many wives. And you go, hmm, who is it in the Bible that, I know there was somebody who's famous for having all of these. Oh, that was Solomon. That's right. And it says, lest it turn his heart away. And you go, now who was it? who ended up following all of these other gods because of the wives. Wait a minute, that was Solomon, wasn't it? And then lastly, it says, nor should he have a lot of silver and gold. And you go, now who was the guy that they said, oh, people didn't even pay attention to silver during his day. Um, it was because there was so much gold around. Well, wait a minute, that was Solomon too. And so it seems like what you're getting is a guy that says, we're going to have a king, but we don't want a king who has the kinds of abuses that Solomon has inflicted on us. There is one prohibition, though, that doesn't seem to fit with Solomon. And it's where it says it needs to be somebody from your own country. And this never really comes up at all until right about the time of uh, Neo-Assyria's uh, imposition into the land of Judah, where it looks like the kings are trying to decide, should we become vassals to Assyria or not? And so uh, Neely Wazana has, has done a pretty good article that says that part at least, and I think she would probably go for the whole passage as being a response to kings that are trying to countenance whether they should become vassals to Assyria. I, I'm not convinced that all of those strictures have to do with that. I think it's a pretty good case, though, that this is also saying, look, uh, it was sort of like Isaiah would have argued. Becoming a vassal to Assyria is not going to be what leads to your survival. It will ultimately be what brings your enemies right to you. So you just need to stand strong. You just need to have faith. Don't submit to Assyria and let God be the one who takes care of you. And so I think that's probably what that particular passage is. Now, the flip side is, as you rightly point out, there are also some positive commands that are in there. Actually, just sort of one big positive command. And that is, the, uh, the king needs to remember who is ultimately in charge. And it's sort of a triumvirate of who's in charge. It's God and his priests and his Torah. Mm. And so the king needs to make sure that he doesn't elevate himself above those three who really are just one and the same. Because it's God who gives the Torah, it's God who gave the, uh, gave the priest, it's the priest who mediate between the people and God, it's the priest who teach the Torah. And so what the, the king needs to do is submit to that Torah. And the way that he does it is it is incumbent upon him to have a copy of the law written. He's supposed to read out of it so that he can make sure that he doesn't get too big for his britches. Um, so that he doesn't elevate himself above the, the other people that he's supposed to be serving. I think that's, again, the priest, those northern priests, you know, who um, want to be the ones who make sure they're anointing the kings. They're the ones that are God's administrator over the kings um, that are saying to him, Solomon, you, you, you stepped outside of your lane, and it's time to remember that you serve under God, you serve under the priest, you serve under the Torah, which is really three ways of saying the same thing. Right. So if Solomon is our primary negative example of a king, is there a primary positive example that the authors may have in mind in this, the positive side of the description of the king? You know, it, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that to some degree, Josiah has got to be that person. 
uh, you have all of these lines that come up in Deuteronomy where it says, do this, and the one king who does it will turn out to be Josiah. Or you'll have lines that say, don't do this, and the king that it specifies didn't do that will be Josiah. You know, for example, in uh, you know earlier chapters of Deuteronomy, it will say, you know, love the Lord your God with uh, all, your, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, or... Uh, having listened to um, uh, John Levinson's podcast, each one of those terms is a little bit complicated, but however complicated they were, the Deuteronomist will be careful to say Josiah was the person who did it, that he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. And just like it will say about Moses, you know, no prophet has arisen since who was like Moses. It'll say about Josiah, no king has arisen since who was like Josiah. He seems to be the one who does almost ideally what it is that Deuteronomy asks to be done. Now, the biblical historians, you know, they, they use, I think, in some ways, like you mentioned, the law of the king, right, in terms of its assessment of Solomon. How is Deuteronomy, I guess, and this law of the king being used, is being used throughout to kind of give negative assessments, would you say? Well, Certainly when you look at the way that the Deuteronomistic history evaluates kings, you know, it will size up each and every one and say, you know, he, uh, he walked in the ways of Jeroboam um, or he walked in the ways of his father David um, and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. What's so interesting, you know, I think David is kind of a, uh, he's an interesting case because on the one hand, I mean, you could build mansions with all of the closets that David has skeletons in. Um, I mean, his his skeletons and closets have skeletons in their closets. Um, there's so many of them. But the other part of him, though, is, you know, he gets this assessment that he's a, a man, you know, after God's own heart. And so you try to sort of balance the two. How right. can you both be a man after God's own heart and mm -hmm. also do these things? The one area where David never seems to mess up is in his um, commitment to Jehovah and no one else. So he may mess up ethically. Um, I mean, Mike, that's a, an understatement. When you uh, take advantage of Bathsheba, when you murder Uriah and other people to go along with it, there are other people that he ends up killing that, you know, I think you could make a strong case that he should not have killed. There are things that he does wrong, but the one area where he, he never falters is he's committed to Jehovah and nobody else. And the way that the Deuteronomistic history really sizes up characters, it, it I mean, it, I guess it's the same sort of dilemma that sometimes you have in the prophets. Amos talks a great deal about ethical issues, how we treat the poor. He doesn't talk a whole lot about um, fidelity to Jehovah and nobody else. Hosea, on the other hand, doesn't talk a whole lot about uh, how we treat the poor, but talks, you know, endlessly about fidelity in our commitment to Jehovah. The Deuteronomistic history is a little bit more aligned with Hosea in that regard than it is with Amos. And so it's, it's not that it's picking one over the other. It's just what is the issue for the Deuteronomistic history? It is this issue of when we are faithful to Jehovah and no one else, God delivers us. When we are unfaithful, when we pursue other gods, disaster strikes. 
And, and I think they took that in a very real sense that the motivating feature for the Deuteronomistic history is what happened to the northern kingdom. That they saw Assyria come in and just unleash carnage upon the north, and their conclusion was this happened because the north worshipped idols. If we do not somehow purge idolatry and infidelity from our midst, we're next. And so this is why it's such a live issue for them. This, this is not some academic you know, thing that they're just thinking, well, you know, I really think monotheism is the way to go. They, they think this is a life or death matter. And when you look at David, well, he never messed up on monotheism. You know, he was completely faithful in that regard. So I, I think that's why, <clears throat> uh, or that's how the, the kings tend to be judged throughout mm. that history. Let's move on from kings to priests in chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. Uh, verses 1 to 8 address the priests, but their concern is less with the responsibilities of priests and more with their rights. So they are not to have an inheritance because the Lord is their inheritance, verses 1 and 2. They have a right to parts of the sacrifice, the shoulder, the jowls, and the stomach, delicious. Our former colleague, Ken Roxborough, who's from Scotland <laughs> and is a big fan of haggis, may <laughs> you like this passage. Um, uh, they also have a right to the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, and wool in verses 3 to 5. And they have the right to come to the place the Lord will choose, <clears throat> i.e. Jerusalem, and minister there. So what do these verses tell us about life in Israel, and do they have any theological significance? Well, this is one of the places where Deuteronomy is so distinctive is in its presentation of these Levitical priests. When you get uh, you know, further along in Israel's history, they're going to make a pretty sharp distinction between the priests and the Levites. And so it will be the priests who are the descendants of Aaron, uh, specifically, they're the ones that get to do uh, the special rites that are in the temple, you know, the Holy of Holies and so forth. The Levites will not have all of those same kinds of privileges. And most scholars see that there's somewhat of an argument amongst the priestly families um, about really who should be able to serve as priests. And this is something that it, you don't have to dig very deeply to figure this out. If you look at Numbers chapter 16, there's the whole story about Korah and his uh, crew who challenge Moses. And, and who they're really challenging in there is Aaron. And they're upset at Aaron. They're saying, you know, you have elevated yourself too highly above the other people. All of God's people are holy. We should all be able to serve. And the response is, no, it's, it's just going to be those descendants of Aaron that can serve. Deuteronomy doesn't actually take that tack. Uh, in Deuteronomy, the Levitical priests, all of them are able to serve as priests. And one of the things that's happening as the uh, worship is being centralized is that now we don't have any of those, you know, worship centers throughout the rest of Israel. So what are we going to do with all of these Levites that are there? Many of them are now suddenly find themselves unemployed or underemployed. And so there are a couple of concerns that come out in Deuteronomy repeatedly. One of them is care for the Levites. Um, you know, when you, uh, I think it's in chapter 13, maybe it's chapter 14, when you go to celebrate uh, at the festivals, um, it says, you know, you can bring your stuff with you, you have a big party and so forth, don't forget the Levites. Mm -hmm. 
And so it wants to make sure that they're cared for as well. And I think part of that is just a response to the fact that those country Levites, the provincial Levites, are now uh, not doing the same role that they would have been doing before. The other component of it is that um, it wants to say that if those priests want to, they can come to Jerusalem and they can serve uh, in the, the priestly arena just like anybody else. And so, uh, whereas uh, there's a, a longstanding debate between is it the, the priests who are descended from Moses or the priests who are descended from Aaron who get to serve in the temple, Deuteronomy is making its case that you know all of these get to serve uh, in the temple. Now, just like uh, with the judges, these instructions here concerning the priests are followed by an apparently, seems like, unrelated passage about abhorrent practices, such as child sacrifice, divination, sorcery, right, which, of course, are all prohibited. Is this kind of just like a, another, another one of those spots where, well, we need a place to put these things, or are they connected in some way to the instructions concerning the priests? Yeah, see, I think this one's actually a little better connected because okay. of the two groups between whom it's sandwiched. So here you have a lot of laws that have to do with religious violations, and they appear right in between the priests and the prophets. And I think that actually works pretty well, too, with uh, 17 verses 2 through 7, where they're in between the two passages about the judges, and sure enough, it has to do with you know witnesses and testimony and so forth. The only real outlier in there is that passage that is, uh, what is it, like 1621 to 17-1, where it's about like the blemished animals and things like that. That's the one to me that feels a little bit awkward. I actually think this one probably fits just right. Who's going to be the one who is uh, making sure that you don't do these religious violations? It's going to be the priests and the prophets. So let's move on to the prophets. Uh, Chapter 18, 15 to 21. Uh, and the passage actually refers to a prophet in the singular, one like Moses, whom the Lord will raise up. So this raises two questions for us right off the bat. The first is, we often think of Moses as the great lawgiver, but was he also a prophet? Uh, he is uh, absolutely a prophet. Uh, certainly, if you are in Deuteronomy, uh, he is a prophet. Uh, in fact, he's not just a prophet. He is capital T, capital H, capital E prophet. Um, he is the prophet. Um, and the you know closing section of the book, uh, that little add-on about Moses, uh, never since has there arisen a prophet like Moses. Um, uh, one scholar, uh, Jeff Stackert, has made the case he thinks that Moses is the prophet and the only prophet that Deuteronomy envisions. And I, I'm not willing to really follow him quite that far on there, but there is, is no question that he's the prophet extraordinaire uh, for Deuteronomy. What makes, him, what makes him a prophet then? Well, you know, if you think about what Deuteronomy would think that prophets are supposed to do, it's uh, calling the people to fidelity to Jehovah. They're calling them away from idolatry, calling them away from the worship of other gods, calling them toward the positive worship of Israel's God, Jehovah. Well, who does that better uh, than Moses in this extended, you know, sermon's not exactly the right, uh, the right word for this, uh, but this extended, um, you know, uh, 
However, whatever term we shall use for what the book of Deuteronomy <laughs> is, uh, Mark Brettler is out there, uh, you know, grimacing that I use the word sermon to refer to it. Um, but whatever this passage is, this long hortatory address um, that's there, <laughs> it, uh, it, this is, you know, Moses as the, the pinnacle. Who else calls the people to fidelity to Jehovah? Who else um, rails against idolatry more? than does Moses here in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I think he's the the ultimate example of someone who conveys God's message to the people, and that message is one of remain faithful to to God and to nobody else but God. So the second question that that first verse raises then is, do we have here a description of the role of the prophets generally, like we just had with judges and kings and priests, or is there something different going on here? Well, I do think that we get a description of the role of prophets, and that's why I haven't been able to completely follow Stackert's argument, because it seems like it says, okay, these are the prophets and what they're supposed to do. Now, they're, maybe they're not a prophet like Moses, but they're, um, they're not on par with Moses, but they are supposed to follow in the footsteps of Moses, I would say. And I think the role that Deuteronomy sees for those prophets is, again, to call the people to fidelity. So they're the ones who become uh, the conscience of the nation. And to some degree, that's a conscience that is ethically oriented. And so, you know, the Deuteronomistic, or not Deuteronomistic, but Deuteronomic laws have a great deal of information about you know, how you treat the vulnerable uh, strata of society. So there's that element. But again, I think their most important role is calling the people to worship Jehovah and Jehovah alone. Great. Now the passage, this uh, you know, about the prophet, or however you want to take that, uh, I'll let you all sort that one out. But the passage concludes with two tests of a true prophet. The first is, you know, uh, it's fairly straightforward. Verse 20 says that if a prophet speaks in the name of other gods or says something God has not commanded, he shall be executed. I mean, you know, fairly straightforward, right? Well, <laughs> um, now, this, of course, then raises the question in verse 21, which says this, how can we recognize a word that the Lord has not spoken? So what happens if, you know, how are you supposed to figure out uh, whether God has spoken the word or not? And this second test, I think, is harder to follow. In verse 22, says, If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but the thing does not take place or prove true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be frightened by it. But isn't it then, Jeff, too late if you have to wait to see if the prophecy proves true? Like, how is this supposed to work out exactly? You have hit the problem right on the head. Uh, I have a, uh, a class that I'll be teaching next semester on the prophets. And one of the arguments that I'll make is that I think it's this dilemma that may well lead to the end of the prophetic movement, mm -hmm. is that the prophets are only helpful retrospectively. Yeah. That if you, you know, how can you be held accountable for not following the prophet's message or for following the wrong prophet's message, if you can't tell whether that message was wrong or right, <clears throat> excuse me, until after the event takes place. Um, and so it's, uh, I, I'll, I'll give a, a petty little example of this, but uh, it was only a, about a month ago or so that my dad had a football game on and he had clicked on the wrong thing 
And so he was clicking on what was a replay of a game rather than the original airing of the football game. And uh, I, I told him that it was a replay and he didn't believe me. <laughs> and and uh, he said, no, I feel sure that whoever it was, you know, they actually won. And I said, I'll put as much money on it as you'd like to put on it. Because <laughs> I had already seen the game. I, I knew how it turned out. Well, you know, in his case, he had not seen the game. And so how do you hold him accountable if he hasn't actually, you know, seen the game? It's it, This is the dilemma, is that if we have to wait to see whether what they say comes true, to know whether to believe them, then at least on the predictive side, they don't seem to be very helpful. Mm. Now, there, there is, a, I guess, a little bit of wiggle room in that, though it's, it's an entirely negative sort of wiggle room. Uh, you know, Jeremiah is the one that complains and says, yeah, when a prophet prophesies something positive that's going to happen <laughs> and that comes true, you come talk to me. <laughs> well, so what Jeremiah seems to be saying is the only sort of prophetic messages that work are messages that condemn uh, people. And so, you know, no wonder the prophets weren't very popular. Um, yeah. You know, it's a it's an ill wind that blows no one any good. Uh, is You know, what they say about Gandalf is, you know, if he uh, if prophets only give negative messages, you could see how, let's say you're the king and you're trying to, you know, buck up the people and get them to resist some foreign enemy. And here you've got, you know, old what's-his-name um, who keeps saying, you're, you're doomed, you're doomed, the end <laughs> is near. You can see why they would have run afoul of one another. So... I tend to think that aspect of the prophetic movement doesn't endure. And the part that does endure is that more ethical side, where uh, ethical and uh, fidelity side. The part of the prophetic movement that survives is not predicting the future. It is calling the people to um, treat the vulnerable with kindness and justice and calling the people to worship Jehovah and nobody else. Predicting what's going to happen doesn't really seem to uh, to be that effective. Um. Yeah, I mean, you do have so like Second Samuel seven, Nathan's prophecy to David is a very positive prophecy, and it's one that throughout the Hebrew Bible they refer back to over true, and true. over again. Um, but it's before I guess you get this breakdown, and I do think that that's a huge issue in the book of Jeremiah. Is how are we going to trust these prophets? How, who who do we listen to in this situation? And it's funny that Jeremiah, you know, if his approach is only prophets of doom are ones that you can trust. I mean, that sounds like one of those examples of if you've got a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, right? <laughs> that's a good way <laughs> of putting that's, it. Yeah, that's what he's got. Jeremiah's prophet of doom. He's, he's got the hammer. I mean. He's got the, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it does raise these very serious uh, questions about, uh, I mean, do you think the authors, readers of Deuteronomy, they're aware of the difficulty here and they're just kind of, they're reaching for whatever they can to try and solidify this, this role? Or is this coming before the, that breakdown has happened? How do you see that? Well, I guess if I used a, a modern-day illustration, um, how many times in human history have Christians said, this must be the end? Mm -hmm. I mean, how can the world get any worse than it is? And whether this is, you know, I would argue Mark writing in the initial stages of the first Jewish revolt and saying to himself, 
well, it can't get any worse than this. Surely this has got to be the moment when the parousia happens, when Jesus comes back. Well, he didn't. And, and so, well, maybe you'd say it was it, the second Jewish revolt, you know, so the Bar Kokhba revolt in, you know, 132 to 135, that must be it. Or, or maybe it's the persecutions, you know, that hit when Christianity is starting to become more popular in the Roman Empire, but it still didn't happen. And, you know, what, what could one possibly think could be worse than the, you know, Black Death when you have like a third of Europe dying and you think, well, it can't get any worse than this. Or you could keep moving ahead and you could see some of the atrocities that were committed in the 20th century. I, you know, in my own life, the thing that you think of is like 9-11, that, you know, in the days right after that, you go, gosh, how much longer is God going to allow this to go on? Surely there's got to be some stopping point. And so I think the impulse is right. It's just that the conclusion has always been wrong. Hmm. And I think the prophets in Israel were similar that, you know, they were largely, I think, careful readers of uh, the world stage and were saying to Israel, if you keep doing this, God is going to punish. And so their, their future telling, their forth telling is almost on the level of someone saying, you know, if you keep running around with scissors, you're going to cut yourself. If you keep doing that, you'll put your eye out. You don't have to be Nostradamus to figure that kind of thing out. Israel, if you keep doing this, God is not going to preserve you permanently. So I think there's that element to it. The dilemma is, I, I think you also have people in Israel, the same as people today, trying to hear what God's voice is for the present time and knowing how to respond. I mean, let's say that we did interpret uh, September 11th as um, an act of divine justice against America. Okay, so what do I fill in the blank as this was the sin that affected that sort of divine judgment, it's just out of my pay grade. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think biblical authors did not necessarily feel that it was out of their pay grade, and so they, <laughs> they came up with explanations for them. But, you know, sometimes those explanations, you look at them and you go, really? And the one I always think of is Josiah. Uh, you know, the Deuteronomistic history holds Josiah up as the, you know, just about the king par excellence. But Chronicles is really struggling with figuring out, okay, if he was such a good guy, then why did he die so young? Yeah. And their conclusion is, is that he did not listen to the voice of God. And you go, wow, that's pretty harsh. Why, why would Josiah not do that? That was spoken to him through the mouth of, the, of Pharaoh Necho. And you go, really? <laughs> so I hear the Egyptian Pharaoh speaking to me, and I have to be uh, perceptive enough spiritually to understand that that was really God speaking through Pharaoh Nico to tell me what to do. And so when I didn't do what Nico said, I was disobeying God. <laughs> That's playing for keeps. Um, you know, how, how are we supposed to do that? And so, you know, I think they're struggling. And I think they, like we, sometimes wrestle to fit everything into their theological grid. And sometimes things are just outliers, um, as, you know, our mutual affection for the book of Job would suggest. You can't always figure it out. So what do you do? You, you just keep plugging away, keep lamenting, keep going after God, and keep pursuing. So, Well, drawing on the genre that we uh, always come back to at the end of every episode, we ask uh, our guest um, to give us a blurb, you know. 
uh, the things that you find at the back of books where you know someone recommends the book that you've written um is, it doesn't have to be a book jeff it could be you know something that you have kind of stumbled upon in the last few months something that uh you enjoy something that some product that's helping you accomplish everything that you've dreamed of accomplishing now um <laughs> indeed give it give, give us give us your best one jeff you know, pretty much the center of my, you know, recommendation would be there's this episode of the Two Testaments podcast uh, about <laughs> Job 3. And they have this guy named Jeff Leonard on there. And it will change your life, uh, really. It's all the pieces fall into place once you've watched that episode. Um, so now I was. I, I was can get behind that one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I was thinking about this and. Uh, uh, so uh, one of the uh, I, I recommended this to a friend just recently. Um, one of my favorite novels is uh, John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Mm -hmm. It is far better than The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, it's certainly better than Cannery Row or, or some of his other ones there. Uh, East of Eden, if for for people that are um, students of the Bible, they will love to see the way that Steinbeck sort of plays out this allegory of that dynamic of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, and, and he brings Lilith in there, uh, truthfully. Uh, but it's about this uh, a couple of families that live in the Salinas uh, you know, Valley in California during the early part of the 1900s. And uh, the dad's name is Adam. He's got two sons. Uh, one of them's name is Cal for um, you know, Cain, and the other one's name is Aaron um, for Abel. And uh, so he's he's got those two sons there and, you know, the way that they interact with one another. It's just, you know, I don't know, delightful is the right word because it's a sad book, but it uh, it's so deep and rich. Um, it, it's a tapestry of different illusions and uh, allegories, a little bit more like Tolkien, say, than like C.S. Lewis. And one of the parts that I just love in it is um, there's a, a guy who is a Chinese cook who works for the family, and he was listening to them read scripture. And they read the story about Cain and Abel, and it translated the line to Abel, you may master it, um, when it's talking about the sin that's crouching at his door. And then he heard it in a different translation, and he says, well, wait a minute, which one of these is right? And he narrates how he goes back to San Francisco, gets together with the elders in his clan uh, from China, and they're so interested in it that they begin studying Hebrew, and they eventually pass the rabbi uh, who was teaching them in terms of their learning it, just so they can study this one word, Tim Shell, to see what it really means. And I, I use this to talk to my students to say, this is a far better approach to Scripture than the read through the Bible in a year approach. Because to read through it in a year, you're just skipping across it like a stone across a pond. A scripture is read better when it's read slowly. Mm -hmm. And it would be better to savor one word for two years than it would be to try to just, you know, go to a three-star Michelin restaurant and eat in 15 minutes, uh, which is what I think sometimes we do. So Steinbeck's East of Eden is my recommendation. I think that means that this whole episode should have been us trying to parse one <laughs> verb with you, Jeff. 
Indeed. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, um, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, we would be grateful uh, if you went to Apple Podcasts and uh, gave us a five-star review. We may come back with another episode just on one word here or there in the future, but we're grateful <laughs> to Jeff uh, for walking us through these few chapters. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about the Hebrew Bible with you, Jeff, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to do it so often at Samford. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Samford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelda, and the team in the Samford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion. Yeah.